This podcast was made possible by the Guilford Anti-Racism Alliance in collaboration with Fusion Films. Doing Our Work Session 11, White's Memories of School Integration in Greensboro. Author and professor of sociology Kristen M. Lavelle comes back to Greensboro, North Carolina to discuss her book, Whitewashing the South, White Memories of Segregation and Civil Rights. I'm delighted to introduce Kristen Lavelle. Hi. Great. Can you hear me? Okay. So start a wave in the back if, if my voice drops off. Okay. If it drops off, let me know. All right. Thank you. Uh, wow. It's... It's amazing to be here back in Greensboro. Um, I've lived all over. I'm from Arkansas. I've lived in Florida. I've lived in Texas. I live in Wisconsin now. I've lived in Montana. And Greensboro is my favorite place. So, yes, yes, it's true. Um, so I'm just really happy to be here today. Um, I actually have not been back since I moved. This is my very first visit since I moved from here in 2011. So. It is, has been a nice homecoming. Um, so what I'm going to talk about today is actually, it's really just a small piece of a larger project. Um, I'm just going to talk a bit about school integration, that moment that people talked about when I interviewed them. Um, and I actually want to start by talking about Josephine Boyd. So um, most Greensboro residents should be fairly familiar with her. Um, she was the very first black student to integrate a white school in North Carolina, and she did that right here in Greensboro. Um, what many people around the country have heard about um, and know at least minimally well is um, Little Rock Central High School. Um, they had the Little Rock Nine. They had nine students who integrated that um, formerly all-white high school. They required National Guard troops to get into school. Um, and that's very well known. And actually, a couple weeks before that, Josephine Boyd was integrating, uh, at the time, Greensboro Senior High School. It's now Grimsley. She did it all by herself. Um, and that's really a story that, you know, I didn't hear before I moved here to do this research. Um, it's one of the many stories that have been undertold as we've talked about this era. Uh, so when, uh, so. Josephine Boyd actually uh, passed away about a year and a half ago, so you may have seen some write-up in the News and Record, for example, um, from that. Um, so uh, she talked about, um, the author of that article talked about when she came to Greensboro Senior High School, what she noticed. So uh, the textbooks were all very new. This was her contrast. She had gone all the way up through junior, her junior year, so she was going to do her senior year. Um, at the formerly all-white school. New textbooks, lots of microscopes in the biology lab. Um, so there was this sort of, wow, this educational opportunity is very amazing. Um, but the racism was very severe, and it was daily, and it was incessant, and it lasted the whole year. So she had rocks thrown at her, spitballs, tacks put in her seat. This is, of course, a picture of her here um, in, in the classroom. Um, name calling, uh, people calling her home and um, threatening her parents and her family. Um, and her parents stood by her decision to go through with this. 
Um, the community stood by her and, and encouraged her um, to follow what she felt was the way towards justice. Um, and she later wrote that she had learned to internalize all of the pain she was feeling, the anger, the rejection, and the alienation. And if I need to cry, I go home and I wait for nightfall. Um, so there were many other students who in were on this first wave of early integration and not many at that time lasted as long as Josephine Boyd. Um, she graduated uh, Greensboro Senior High School. She went on to earn her doctorate and she became a professor. Um, so in some ways kind of a, a success story. Um, what I've been most interested in through the research that I've done is I know there are many undertold and untold stories um, such as Josephine Boyd's and many other um, unnamed people, um, but I'm also very, very curious about all the other people who, who were next to her, um, these other people in the classroom. Um, white Southerners have not often been asked to talk about um, what they saw and what they witnessed and how they remember it. So that's what I sought to do with this study. Um, and my hope is that if we can understand something about whites, when we ask questions about race, if we can understand something about whites, we can understand a lot about our society and a lot about ourselves. And in this case, a lot about this place, uh, Greensboro. And of course, it's just part of the story. All right, so um, a little bit about me. Um, I moved here in 2006. Um, I really chose to come to Greensboro. It, to be honest, it was fairly random, but I'm glad I wound up here. Um, I had done a little bit of research, sort of informally, as a grad student in another town where not enough things had happened regarding race and racism that enough white people remembered enough to tell me much. So I decided I wanted to come to, uh, air quotes, civil rights city. So I made a short list of the top <coughs> civil rights cities. So just the cities that were most well known for having had a lot of civil rights um, activity. So that when I went there, people would really have something to talk about. Um, so yeah, so I moved to Greensboro. Uh, I wound up doing interviews with 44 people. Um, and there, there were some criteria I had to meet. So I wanted to interview more people, of course. You always want more. Um, but I wanted them to be lifelong residents of this place so that they can comment on this place across their whole lives. Um, I wanted them to be old enough that they could remember much of their childhood and even into maybe their adulthood under Jim Crow segregation. So um, most of the people, as you'll learn, most of the people I interviewed actually, it was their kids in school with Josephine Boyd or after Josephine Boyd, not themselves. So. Um, I wanted them to be old enough that they would have had autobiographical memories of both segregation and the civil rights era. Um, so, and I wanted them to be all, all white as well. Um, so I wound up interviewing people, the youngest, there were a couple people under 60 at the time. So um, I wanted them to be over 60, but I made a few compromises um, on that. But in general, the median age was about 70 years old. So most people were in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, and the interviews tended to last about an hour and a half on average. A uh, couple interviews, three or four, um, were with married couples. 
So actually, I don't have any examples I'm going to show you today, but I do. In the book, there are examples where there's actually two people talking, and that's some interesting stuff. Um, and then a few of the interviews actually had assi assistance helping me with. So I did most of the interviews by myself, but I did have some help. All right. Um, so my overall questions I was asking of this research, um, first of all, how do elder white Southerners construct narratives of the racial past? So in reflecting on this lifetime inclusive of segregation, civil rights era, and the more current decades, what are their major stories? So what are their collections of stories and the storylines um, through those narratives? Um, so I wanted to look at that. Um, and I also am very interested in how memory relates to how we view the world, how we make <coughs> sense of the world. So ideology in this case, how do memories of the racial past relate to views about racial issues, perhaps, or views about what the world looks like or how society is structured? Um, and then on the more personal level, how do our memories um, intersect with our sense of who we are? So my memories and my stories about myself, how does that um, demonstrate my sense of self? And what are the emotional resonances uh, of those memories? Um, so as I, as I mentioned, this is a, a larger project. The piece I'm talking about today is just the school desegregation narratives. So. Um, People did talk at length about segregation. They talked about childhood. They talked about growing up in their parents' homes. Um, talked about the family realm as well as the public sphere. Um, and then uh, people also talked about, of course, the sit-ins and the protests and all the other actions that happened here, um, mostly in the, the early 1960s. And then the most significant, more recent event that people talked about was the 1979 uh, event that's been called the Greensboro Massacre. Um, and so we had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the GTRC, um, that was happening right when I moved here. That whole process was sort of kind of coming to a conclusion. The report had just come out. Those of you who were here then probably um, are familiar with this whole timeline. Um, so that was a Truth and Re Reconciliation Commission um, that operated to uncover what had happened in 1979. Um, and one note about this timeline, um, actually almost everybody was interviewed before Barack Obama was elected president. So there is kind of a missing piece in terms of when I happened to be here. I think that would have been a, a moment that um, unfortunately I didn't get to capture in terms of something people might have had something to say about more recently. Um, and then uh, a bit of academics. So I want to give you a sense of uh, kind of my perspective as an analyst. So when I am interpreting interviews, people's stories about themselves, what kind of perspective am I bringing? So I'm a sociologist. Um, I primarily studied in graduate school uh, race and racism in the United States. Um, so the knowledge base that I had developed when I began this study uh, was very much focused on understanding racism as it has operated across time in the United States. And racism not on that individual level that we tend to talk about, prejudice and bigotry and name calling but on how the society has been structured to really advantage certain people um, and disadvantage others. 
Um, so that was very much a part, and still is uh, very much a part of my perspective. Um, and the kind of the question that I'm really seeking to answer um, is how, how does that perpetuate itself throughout the society? Um, and I'd also studied a lot about ideology. So how do we make sense of these inequities that our society has created? Um, what are the reasonings that we give to rationalize uh, racism and racial inequality, um, to legitimize it, um, to make it okay? Um, okay, and then a bit about memory. So um, psychologists and sociologists and some others really see memory as a social process as opposed to something that's just like in your head, you know, and just as individual to you, but we form our memories in a context with other people and in a time and a place. Um, and memory is not <coughs> historical. So um, conceptually, that's important to think about. Memory is something we're doing right now. We're either hanging on to things, hanging on to images as we go through our lives, um, and that's, that's the memory. Um, so it's not really about what actually happened to us, our memories. It's about the things that we have held on to as important that, that seem to be important to us. So it's an active process. Um, and memory scholars uh, make the argument that memory is essentially identity creation, identity maintenance. So we, through remembering our own lives, we're using that to make sense of who we are and sort of establish our sense of ourselves. Um, so that's, those ideas are, are very uh, pivotal to the way I looked at this, um, this uh, interview data. Um, just a little bit about previous research. Um, there have been really only a few memory studies of segregation era white Southerners. So people of the same general cohort as who I talked to. Um, so I'll just point out a few of those. So Susan Tucker, She's an anthropologist, and she did interviews with uh, white women and black women. The white women had been employers of black domestic servants or domestic laborers, and the black women had been domestic laborers in, in white homes. Um, and she found among the white women a lot of nostalgia um, for that time uh, when those relationships were in, in the white home. Um, and kind of a more, you know, putting a more positive spin on what that relationship was about. So many more kind of negative memories from the black domestic workers. Um, Sandy Gill, she's a sociologist. She uh, lived nearby to the, Birming the church in Birmingham that was bombed. Um, and some children died in that bombing. Um, she, so she lived there. She went back and interviewed people that she knew. She's also a white woman. Um, and she talked a lot in her analysis uh, about how people kind of didn't remember things. So she talked about forgetting, and she felt that there was what she called a coalition of silence. So this idea that there's no way to remember something if the people around you say, we don't really talk about that, whether explicitly or implicitly saying that. Um, and then Beth Roy, similarly, she, um, she went to Little Rock Central High School during school integration. So she went back and interviewed white and black um, people who'd been, st who'd been students at the school at that time. And she found among the whites um, who had gone through school integration a sense that they had been victimized and 
some lingering resentment that they still had for that whole process. So um, quite a few of these I, um, quite a few of these concepts uh, I found also in my research. Um, okay, and then I want to say a bit about uh, school integration in Greensboro. There's a great book by Bill Chafe. Um, uh, civility, civilities and civil rights. Yes, so some of you know this book. It's an excellent uh, historical account of how school integration happened in Greensboro. So that was a very, very valuable resource for me um, and gave me the ability to do quite a bit of context. So something you'll notice, of course, right away is that I only talk to white residents of Greensboro about school integration. So um, there's, a, there's a gap there uh, from that angle, but having the context of a historical account of that time was really important for me to put, put those people's accounts into some context. Um, so Bill Chafe describes sort of the arc of school integration in Greensboro. Um, it's a really fascinating story, so I do encourage you to read that book. Um, so I'll do it really briefly. So 1954, uh, the Brown versus Board of Education decision came out, but the Supreme Court said uh, segregated schools are not constitutional. All right. So Greensboro School Board actually met within days of that announcement. So this was the spring of 1954. The Greensboro School Board announced that uh, Greensboro schools are ready to comply with the Supreme Court decision. Um, and as far as, as far as I can tell, that really was the first announcement of any school district in the United States. Um, so Greensboro really came out first on that. And there's a long story in the middle. Greensboro was the, one of the last schools in the entire nation to fully desegregate school districts in um, 1971. So, so uh, what happened in between, we did have Josephine Boyd in 1957. So there was a sprinkling of black students who attended white schools. 1963, um, the Freedom of Choice Plan was implemented. Um, this was where they were doing it by you know, one grade year at a time. Um, having people enroll in other schools. Lots of um, school districts around the South did a freedom of choice plan and it tended to not result in very much actual integration. Um, and Greensboro really held on to the last, just the last second. They were facing um, uh, basically a loss of funding from the federal government. They were facing a lot and the school board just immediately put in in 1971 really rapidly a comprehensive plan. So school assignments, busing, um, and that's really important context to know about because when I, when I interviewed people about school integration, that seemed to be for almost everybody the point that they thought was the beginning of it. 1971, that moment when everything changed so quickly when really it's a 17-year story that, you know, that, that actually got to that place of having to do things very fast. Um, so that added a layer of people feeling like it had really happened um, too rapidly in a way. Um, so Bill Chafe uses this term progressive mystique, and he says that Greensboro is actually one of the most ideal places to study um, race and racial, racial history because Greensboro um, has had a notion of itself as being very progressive for a long time. Um, but in many of its policies and actions and practices has really been much like any other southern city. Um, so he coined this term really just, just to describe uh, Greensboro. 
All right, so I'm going to first tell you uh, the major themes that I found in my interviews, the narratives of school desegregation. Um, and then I'll show you some examples. So I'm pulling excerpts from interviews so you can kind of see what I was looking at. Um, so what I do, um, sociologically, what I'm doing is taking all these interviews and reading them one by one and trying to find patterns. So what are the kinds of stories that, oh, I, I've heard that before. Someone else said something similar. So then I'm compiling, okay, here's a theme, here's a theme, here's a theme. Um, here's an outlier, here's something unique. Um, so I'm, what I'll try to do is give you a sense of both sides of that, the things that were very common and then some more unique items as well. Um, all right. So uh, one thing that was very, very common, um, I would say almost unanimous, um, although there was, a, there was a great variety of people I interviewed. Oh, and I want to say, actually, uh, I didn't mention this. Um, the people that I decided to interview, um, I used the term ordinary. So what I really was going for was ordinary people, not the activists and not the you know, not people on, this, on the ends of the spectrum, not the politicians, um, but really just ordinary, everyday people. So um, I was kind of aiming for that middle. So there is a lot of variety, but um, almost to a person, people stated that they definitely agreed with integrating schools. Um, so there was always that acknowledgement, almost always. Um, a few people said they didn't really like it at the time. But now, of course, they're fine with it. Um, but many, many people said that they were always, in principle, <coughs> supportive of integrating the schools. They thought that that was probably right. Um, uh, because my focus was storytelling, um, a lot of the themes had to do with the most vivid types of stories that emerged. Um, lots and lots of stories about busing. So people really remembered what busing was like. Most of the people I interviewed, uh, they were parents at the time. So almost everybody had very first-hand accounts or second-hand through their children and their neighbors. Um, and basically, to a person, busing was very inconvenient. It was a chaotic time. Sometimes the school assignments were very awkward. You might have a kid in one school, a different kid in another school, and bus, you know, multiple buses and things like that. Um, so people tended to remember busing very, very negatively. Um, and some of them still, it felt very raw, some of them, how they felt about it still today. Um, when classrooms were described, they were usually described as very chaotic um, during integration and that the educational quality was um, very poor at the time for their children. So drawing a contrast between what their kids had experienced before integration and then sort of a depression of, of the educational quality um, through that. Um, and then this was perhaps um, one of the most fascinating themes that came out was uh, black bullies. So a number of stories of their children or someone else's children being bullied by a black kid. Um, there were a number of those stories. Um, and then uh, lingering resentment uh, was very, very common among people. So um, some of the ways that, some of the negative ways that people felt really had still lasted 
um, across time. So I saw really a very common theme overall of victimization. So we were victimized during this time. It wasn't right the way that it happened, but we agree that it probably should have happened. So kind of that intellectual agreement, it should have happened, but emotionally it was all, you know, it was all pretty bad. Um, all right, so I'll give you some examples. Um, the first one uh, is n most noteworthy because it really touches on a number of these themes. Uh, agreement with integrating the schools, busing in being inconvenient, and some lingering feelings, uh, negative feelings. All right, so this is from Arnold. Um, he was in his 80s. Um, everybody got a pseudonym, so that's also common sociological practice in this kind of a study. Everybody's identities were concealed. Um, so this is someone I wound up naming, Arnold. All right, so he said, my children weren't victims of being forcibly bused, except the one child, my youngest. The others escaped that need, and that could have been bad if they had to be bused someplace. Busing, I thought, was not a good thing. I know what they were trying to do, but I don't think it was a good thing because all the people all over town would have been far better for them to go to a local school. In fact, we'd located our home within short walking distance of three schools, so our children could walk to school, didn't have to ride a bus. I felt that was the best way it could possibly be. But you would never get integration. You would never get the mixing of the races that way. I understand that. It just wouldn't happen. It's something had to be forced, and that's what happened. Um, so in, in the beginning here, he's invoking very clear victimization language. Children who had to be bused, they were victims of that. Um, and overall, it was not good. Um, so in this case, the children are being victimized by the busing policy. Um, and you can also see probably a bit here of a little bit of his class status, having had been able to move into a neighborhood for the schools and then feeling like um, they weren't able to follow through with the benefits of that choice for their children to have local schools. And then there at the end, the acknowledgement of um, integration needing to happen had to be forced. All right. Um, I'm going to share two brief accounts of uh, African American bullies of white children. Um, these, for me, are, are very significant because without any context, you know, this is just kids being mean to each other, but within the context of this moment and thinking again about Josephine Boyd's story, it's really it's really interesting that the stories about bullying would be white kids being traumatized by black kids. Um, so Mac, a, a man in his 80s, he said, an administrator told me one day, Mac, I think if you can afford it, you would be smart to send your daughter to private school because she has too much visibility. He said, I'm afraid that some of the black girls will try to cut her face or mutilate her in the girls' room. And he said, we've had threats of that, especially with pretty white, blonde, white girls. He says, don't spread that around. Um, so here, Mac is actually giving me a glimpse into the backstage of white conversations <coughs> and rumors um, and the fear that was spread um, in some circles, at least, around school integration. 
Um, Mac was one of the parents who did move children into the private schools, which was a very, very um, common thing that happened in Greensboro through school integration. Many parents moved their children into private schools or added to the county schools to avoid the process. Um, so we can see here this information sharing among white networks around how dangerous these schools would be specifically for white kids. Um, the next story is, is an actual bullying story, one of, one of the several that I uh, heard. This is from Ellie. And she said, I just will never forget this. There was a big black boy that sat in front of our son and when he got to school, this black boy sort of ran supreme in the classroom and he would say, your people have slaved my people, now I'm gonna slave you. Um, so something about both of these excerpts is really important to note. They both include direct quotes. So I, I know I have a bad memory, I really do, but to recall a, a moment you know, 40 years prior with direct quotes, that's a very vivid memory. That's something that um, you know, didn't just occur, but this is something that has been very memorable and has resonated across time for people. Um, in both of these stories, we have the imagery of the uh, very aggressive, and in Ellie's case, very big, aggressive African-American um, tormentor. Um, and by contrast, we get the innocent white children, the vulnerable and innocent white children being promoted through these stories. Right. Um, so moving into uh, portrayals of teachers. Um, there were a number of stories about uh, how, how these, mostly parents, um, how they viewed the role that teachers played in the integration process. Um, several people told stories about teachers. Um, most of the stories about white teachers were extremely sympathetic, and most of the stories about black teachers were quite negative. Um, and Patty, actually told uh, one of each. She told one story about a white teacher and one about African-American teacher. Um, all right, so the first one is a first-hand account. She had actually gone and been sitting in in the classroom for this moment. All right, so she was talking about this teacher. She was one of the few white women at that school and she's a wonderful, wonderful teacher but there were three children in there that I think you would call special needs who were so out of control that they were bouncing off the walls and destroying the educational opportunity of everybody else. It was not the teacher's fault. She was doing more than any human. She was skilled, but these three children should not. I mean, it was criminal. Um, so it's not 100% it's not clear here what the backgrounds of these three children are. Um, but certainly what we see is a really high level of empathy being extended to this woman, this very skilled, uh, wonderful, wonderful teacher who was really doing her best. Um, and that was, there were several other stories that reflected similar kinds of feelings. Um, in contrast, um, she also talked about uh, the white parents have certain expectations for what black teachers should be able to do. And I will tell you that I finally went to the principal and I said, you gotta do something about this English class. Part of the dilemma was that the English teacher was woefully unprepared. How she was certified to teach English, I have no idea. But 
It was things like she would read out a spelling list and this I remember so clearly. Flow. So my son had spelled it F-L-O-W. Well, he failed his spelling test and among the many wrong things was flow because you spelled it F-L-O-O-R. It was just a nightmare for me because this is not what I considered adequate, but that's what I was stuck with. Um, so again, a very, very vivid memory of a specific word um, that she's remembered her whole life. Um, and I want to point out the, the end piece of this quote. Um, it was a nightmare for me because this is not what I considered adequate, but that's what I was stuck with. So she's asserting here through her, her son's experience kind of a secondary victimization. I was stuck with it. I, I had this problem, and it was a nightmare for me. Um, so the, we kind of get this resonance of victimization starting with the children in the schools and resonating you know, across to the whole family. And then a uh, very similar, so kind of validating quote from Ellie. Several people talked about this loss of educational quality. Um, Ellie also talked about this and this uh, way that teachers were interpreted. She said, there were times when the children would start the beginning of the year and would come home and you'd say, who's your teacher? And you never let your child know it, but when they told you, you just wanted to go in the other room and cry because you knew what the year was going to be like. You had lost years because they didn't get anything. But you were still trying to make a system work, and some of them were good, some of them were bad. But you probably didn't maybe watch the white teachers closely. I would probably say that's true, or expect there to be a problem, where maybe you might expect there to be otherwise. So by the end of this, she's talking about we really were very skeptical of uh, black teachers, that they could teach their children well, um, and they had these negative expectations. And we can speculate, perhaps, how these negative expectations might have affected the way they actually interpreted what happened with their children and in the classrooms. All right, so there were a lot of personal stories people told. Um, I also noticed when they told other people's stories. So mostly what happened when people told stories about other people, it was mostly about um, stories they'd heard from whites. And there was a theme of really extending a lot of empathy towards them. Um, so I have a couple of examples of that. Um, Sharon, she was in her 60s. Uh, Mary Jane told me that she was on the first white bus that was shipped into a black school. And she said, they were throwing rocks at us. And I said, so they didn't want you there. And she says, no, they didn't want us there. And we didn't want to be there. Um, so and then a second one from Sally. I heard a woman say not too long ago she was in a black high school district and her school was in the like 30% white. And he was bullied constantly. And I don't know whether he was bullied because of the color of his skin, but she felt like some of it was the color of his skin and that it was just the worst years she had to live through. Um, so according to what people told me, there they had been exposed to other types of uh, other stories, but largely through their, their white networks. Um, so this is something that, you know, thinking about what, we, what might we expect. We might expect that if you have a mostly white network, um, 
you might not hear other types of stories. You might not have heard or been exposed to stories by African Americans and how they experienced this. Um, so sometimes I had to ask people, you know, to think about it because it, you know, it wasn't coming up naturally. Um, so I asked Bernice, she's in her 80s, I asked her to imagine or speculate how African Americans interpreted the process. Um, she, for her, this was a fairly difficult exercise to think about what it might have been like for them. So I asked her, did you have any sort of idea about what black people felt about integration when it was happening? I don't know. I think some of them didn't want it any more than we did. People like to be with their own kind who do things the way they do. Um, so then I come back in and ask her, so is it your memory that black people and white people were both hesitant about integrating the schools? Maybe not sure if it was going to work? And she says, yeah, I think they were. The black parents were sort of feel <coughs> fearful for their children, which I can understand, because it'd be like sending them into a hornet's nest, more, hornet's nest, more or less. But I never did hear that any black got mistreated or mauled or anything <laughs> like that. <laughs> So, you know, her, her first explanation was, yeah, maybe nobody really wanted it. We all kind of like to be with ourselves, right? Um, so kind of equalizing the, equalizing the power dynamics and kind of not uh, addressing the context. Uh, but then she does come around to, well, they may have been afraid, right? It could have been bad, but immediately dismiss the notion. Right? Probably, I, probably nothing happened, and nothing ever happened bad to them. All right, so I do want to raise up a couple alternative voices. Um, these were you know, some of the most common themes that I saw repeated, um, but there were some interesting variety. Um, so one account comes from Ned, and this is um, a quite vivid, memory of um, African-Americans in schools and quite empathetic. Um, he said, yeah, her name was Josephine, so he's referring to Josephine Boyd. I did hear some of the horror stories that a lot of the white kids put her through as far as I, I didn't think it was right because she had to bring at least two or three changes of clothes with her because they would use water guns and squirt Clorox on her. And I mean, she just got, I don't see how she took it because every week she was there had to have been hell. So he's doing something really interesting here. He's, he's heard the stories, he's remembered them, and he's imagining beyond that. It must have been really terrible um, every day that she was at school. This was one of the very few vivid stories of cross-racial empathy uh, of this time period that anybody I talked to expressed. Um, and then another example comes from Hope. And she talked in a different way about busing. Uh, she didn't think it was all great, but she had a much more nuanced uh, remembrance of it. She said, it was hard to see your child bust all the way, and if she'd get sick, I'd have to try to find transportation to go get her, and we had a school right down the road that she could walk to and had to bus her all the way across town. But they enjoyed getting on that big old yellow bus and riding. My younger children had black teachers and we just loved them. They was good to my kids and you know, what can I say? I, can't, I couldn't be mean. I know some people can, but not me. And my kids never complained about it. 
at all. So what she's doing here is she's saying, yeah, busing was really, it was troublesome, uh, but it was also really positive. Um, and you can see she's painting this picture of her family as being very tolerant and accepting both. Um, she said later in the interview, you know, me and my husband, we didn't, we didn't say anything bad about it. And she felt that that had affected her kids quite a lot as well. Um, and here they even appreciated the African-American teachers that their kids had had. And um, that was not something that hardly anyone else talked about. All right. And then um, the last couple of examples I'll share with you today have to do with really the lingering resonance uh, that a lot of people felt. Um, some it was sadness, some it was disappointment, some people were quite bitter, still quite angry, um, and some quite resentful. Um, Ellie kind of has a tone of disappointment. Um, she said, when we were raising our children, we felt we had a responsibility to do what was, quote, considered right in the schools to try to fix things. But because of what our children were experiencing, we have children that are very prejudiced much more than I would say I ever was, much to my sorrow. So in her experience um, and through her children, um, she feels that the, the individual effects of, of her children is that they actually are more uh, racially prejudiced um, than they would have been otherwise without school integration experiences. So she's portraying a lifetime of negative effects for her children. Um, she had really uh, lots of interesting things to say overall. Um, she was uh, quite middle class, maybe even the upper side of middle class, and had been one of those families who had decided to keep their kids in the public school instead of sending them private. Um, so she had had friends who she felt kind of betrayed by, um, such that kids like hers got these negative effects um, that the other parents let their kids avoid. Um, so kind of interesting um, divide among white communities at that time. Right. So Ellie here, she's talking about lingering individual effects of integration. Carla had a lot of commentary on societal effects of integration. So for her, she really felt like this was something that changed the entire society um, and not for the better. Um, so she said, when they integrated the schools, I think the worst thing that happened in my mind, and I'm sure there were racist comments, and yet I think it's come true, I can remember a family member said, by integrating the schools, they're not going to bring the blacks up. They're going to bring the whites down. And I think that's what happened. To me, when they integrated the schools, it's almost like then the whole level of society was lowered. I know you can say their level of education had to be brought up, but was it? Or was ours just brought down? I just don't get it. I can't quite understand what happened. So I wanted to, to end with this because she was one of the handful of people who really drew a distinct contrast between um, segregation era and the civil rights era in that things were literally better back then and, and started getting bad at this, basically the start of the civil rights era. Um, most other people didn't have that distinct decision they'd made about, okay, it was good back then and then it started to get bad. Um, but nevertheless, a lot of their narratives indicated that feeling anyway. Um, 
So for her, she really felt this was the moment where a lot of things started to go badly. Um, all right, so throughout um, really the whole, um, every era that I was looking at, you know, beyond school integration, um, there was um, a very clear acknowledgement that we agree that civil rights movement, something like school integration, these things are important and needed to happen. Um, but so much of the memory is doing something different. <coughs> it's, it's constructing whites as extremely burdened by the process of the civil rights era um, and harmed, sometimes irreparably. Um, so there's a victim-making process that's happening in, in their narrative construction during the interviews with me. So what happens when you, when you assert a victim you are creating an, an innocent person or group, and you're creating an aggressor, and you're attaching then these positive and negative um, division on these two things. Um, so this is really important, I think, to, to understand um, kind of the staying power of this. Um, and how it intersects with other ideas in the society. So ideological things, stereotypes. Um, what wound up happening is desegregation was unstable, chaotic. Uh, so it winds up being associated with negative, negative, negative um, through their narratives. And this is contrasting with the normalcy, the predictability, the safety of the time that was before. Um, and that winds up getting promoted as the good or better or more preferred time. So from my view, sociologically speaking, um, ideologically, the functions here, so how do we, how do these memories play into how people interpret their society? Um, I, I believe these memories help to downplay, help people to downplay the extent of racism under Jim Crow, to downplay the value of the civil rights era, and to downplay systemic racism in general, um, anti-black racism, and white advantage and privilege. Um, also, and you could see this through, especially those stories of bullies, um, really prevalent there, but reinforcing these negative stereotypes of African Americans, and also through those stories of inco incompetent teachers, um, and reinforcing these positive ideas about whites and what whites deserve and what whites are entitled to. And then the links to emotion and identity. Um, uh, so I've, I've argued that through remembering segregation, and this wasn't the part that I could really talk about much today, but through remembering segregation very positively and remembering themselves as not really involved in racism, and then remembering the civil rights era as very difficult in a time when they were um, targeted and victimized. Um, that this allows people to construct a lifelong positive identity. So it's a, it's a moral identity that can start when they were born under Jim Crow um, and then continue through their victimization. So they're maintaining a sort of racialized innocence. Um, and, and so that's, I believe, an individual thing that people are doing and also has collective aspects that extends beyond their self to their family and to the community around them. Um, 
And then what I also saw, and, and I, I've always been really interested in empathy, just personally, but um, really saw a lack of expressed <laughs> empathy towards people of color, especially African Americans in this case. Um, so it seems to be a real, a real gap and a real empty space um, that is unfortunate that isn't filled in that way. Um, and I think what also, just in general, this, I think what my work starts to point to is that our emotions, our memories, this is all very tied up in race. So their emotions were tied into their ideas about, um, about what had happened. Um, and what was important to remember and to know and to tell me in the interview about what had happened. Um, so that basically covers what I wanted to go over with you today. I know that there's probably a lot of people in the room who you've also lived here your whole lives or you've moved here and thought, what's this place about? Um, so I'm imagining there are lots of people who you might have questions for me, but you also might have things that you're remembering and, and might want to share and talk about with others. So I'm hoping we can have great conversation. Yeah, thank you. Analysis. Uh, did you do an analysis of where you thought these people stood left, middle, right? Sort of. Before you started, yeah. So you politically? Could, yes. What would your expect, expectations of the results be? So you really mean like, are, do they see themselves as a liberal conservative? Yeah, right. Yeah. Could you repeat the question? Yeah, yeah. So he's asking, did I look at or try to identify? Um, ideologically, politically, where people, where they were on a spectrum, liberal to conservative. Um, it was qu quite a range. I mean, people, people wound up saying things that indicated um, there were lots of people identified as Democrats, lots of people Republicans. Um, well, I'm guessing two out of the 44 that were empathetic. Well, no, I wouldn't say that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's my question. Yeah. Um, so whether people are empathetic or not, um, I can't say they aren't. What I can say is what they told me when I asked them to talk about race and racial history from their own perspective. So um, I didn't necessarily get at you know, measuring their level of empathy. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't make that claim that they don't have it. Um, but when they're thinking about their own place in the world, whether past or present, um, putting it in context with African Americans wasn't a big piece of what they did. So really centered on their own lives and their own perspective. Um, which, you know, I think is probably pretty common. But at the same time, this, for me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm quite a bit younger. I didn't live through this extraordinary time of, of the Civil Rights Movement era. Um, and I, I think we could imagine um, people could have thought more about it, um, sought out stories, really been curious about what they had lived through. Um, and that was something that also seemed to be missing. 
So, um, in, yeah. In a city that mm -hmm. considers itself progressive, you yeah. thought you would have seen more empathetic replies. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I will say also, um, there were only 44 people. So they were, they're very clear patterns that I saw. But um, if I had sought out people on the margins of the spectrum, you know, people who've been involved in the movement and such, um, probably would have gotten a bit more in that direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Chris, uh, I, I appreciate, um, hi. Hi, hi, Chris, it's hi. been a long time. Hi, um, <laughs> I, I, we, my family moved to Greensboro in 1971, and mm -hmm. when I was three, and then I went to school here in the uh, 70s and 80s, so over time, I mean, I've sort of a little bit here and there, yeah. uh, but you know, you've really unpacked a, a lot more, so I appreciate it both myself individually, but also collectively as we unpack things. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted to invite, um, there's a really good and the thing about stories that are not told or undertold because there's so many nooks and crannies of the human experience as you know and um, mm -hmm. there's a really good documentary about uh, the greens about the truth and reconciliation commission uh, called greensboro closer to the truth so mm -hmm. i invite folks one of the things that i really appreciate about that is that uh, they really explore from a lot of different perspectives mm -hmm. uh, and and it's a good um, i mean there's a lot there's reports there's a lot of stuff yeah. about it but and it also unpacks about you know the history which patriarchal were but the stories yeah, that the, the person stand up because, uh, I, I, I just want to invite people to, um, there, there's, a, there's a really good documentary called Greensboro Close to the Truth. Adam Zucker and other people followed the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission part of it, the public hearings and other things. And one of the things that they, that they do is that it unpacks about uh, sort of the past about Greensboro and the context. Uh, and um, a, a lot of different, a lot of different perspectives. People who didn't know anything about it, to people who were involved, to public mm -hmm. officials, former officials, etc. So it's called Greensboro Close to the, to the Truth. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I invite folks to look at that. And I was yeah. appreciating her because uh, I just grown up here and had some experiences, but unpacking it at a deeper, uh, much deeper level. So great. Anybody else want to? Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. So I, I did think one thing that might happen is sharing. <laughs> sharing resources like this about other projects that have been done on Greensboro. So that, that documentary is called Greensboro Closer to the Truth. Yeah. And it's really about the truth and reconciliation um, process that happened here. So. I would just like to say that um, my experience in Greensboro was very, very different. I was born here. Both of my parents were born here. And um, I was blessed with a mother who um, knew that all people are one. So that's how I grew up. But I was also blessed with some very special friends. Um, I'm 73. And when I was in high school, well, Josephine Boyd was at Grimsley the year before I got there and the year that after my husband left. So he and I were both at Grimsley, at Greensboro Senior High, but not at the same time. But there were students at Gillespie. I don't know if you're aware of Gillespie Junior High. There were four students there. Fifth, yeah. Um, so so I, I think that's important too. But the greatest blessing I had was to 
have friends through the Girl Scouts, um, friends from Dudley, and I was at Greensboro Senior High, and we went to Colorado together. And we spent a lot of time together before going to Colorado. And we found out we were studying the same things at school. I remember walking through the woods singing the French national anthem. And why? <laughs> why? But we, had, we were all doing the same thing. Um, and we went to uh, Colorado on a train with 500 Girl Scouts. Um, and on the way home, my education started. Um, one night, it was late, and about four of us decided to stay up and talk. And uh, one of those girls was Yvonne Johnson, our mayor, Yvonne, it was Jeffrey's then. Uh, and Tony Douglas, whose uh, father was a minister at St. James Presbyterian Church. And so we talked, and I made a lot of discoveries that night. And one of the ones I can't believe that I hadn't figured out before then was that I knew that I thought differently than a lot of my friends who happened to be white, but I suddenly discovered that everybody's like that. We all thought differently. But I had this thought, and it was painful. I thought, I'm sitting here with two girls who are incredibly bright, um, much better students than I am, and they're not going to have the same opportunity that I have just because of the color of our skins. And so it did me, um, I was so happy when Yvonne became mayor of this town. <laughs> I cannot tell you, and she called and asked if I would, uh, when she was running the second time, and this is my dear, dear daughter-in-law, I took her youngest son with me and I made a presentation talking about our friendship. And um, Nick really seemed to enjoy it and uh, was very impressed that I knew the mayor. <laughs> and I had this wonderful picture of Yvonne and Nick with a big grin. So I, I just, I'm just saying that Greensboro for me um, was opened up because of, because of my parents and because of a couple of women at the scout office who said, we're sending scouts. And so they gave us an opportunity we would not have had. And it's sad to think that uh, we went, we went we were Girl Scouts, but there were two different camps. Mm -hmm. And they would take us at night to the other camp. <laughs> I mean, it was a big deal. And, but this was Greensboro also. So I grew up with friends. My children, we li we've lived in Hawaii and Japan and Korea. And we had just come back from Hawaii when the, we came to Greensboro in 71. We returned home. And our, our kids, I mean, I thought, I was so happy, finally, that Greensboro was catching on. And so I don't remember any negative things that happened to my children. It was Claxton and Blueford were paired. It was, um, the only thing I do remember, uh, I, 
probably you, there was an article recently, Dr. Blunt did the first, uh, well, his granddaughter was a good friend of my daughter when they were eight. And they had fun and they spent the night at each other's house. And my daughter didn't tell me until probably 15 years later, she said, you know, mom, I got grief because of that. Can you believe that? And, um, but yeah, I couldn't believe it. Anyway. I'm gonna stop talking, but Thank you. a lot of good stuff happened here. Hi. Um, you said that one of the universal things of the, the first one you mentioned was that everybody thought that integration had to happen and that it was a good thing that it happened. And I was wondering, I don't know anybody now except the deepest racist who will say, no, integration is a bad thing, we need to be separated. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you took that at face value given all the other things people said, or was there some um, follow-up statements or follow-up uh, expressions that people made, or was it just they said that because they know they can't say anything else? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, I don't, I don't really take anything at face value, you know, in that way. Um, so, I actually believe that saying that is a piece of saying that is a piece of this projection of a positive sense of self. Um, so regardless of the extent to which it's literally true, um, it's a piece of that larger narrative of I'm a good person. When it comes to race, when it comes to who I am and who I always have been. Um, so yeah, it, in this moment, that's really the only thing that people can kind of say um, and make that claim on goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was going to ask you about memory. Yeah. Because one of the things that struck me, and I think you mentioned it in the book, but uh, you didn't, I don't think, hit on it tonight, is the false memories. In other words, the historical either ignorance of actual facts of what happened and when, or creation of memories that, that were not true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. Um this particular bit of the book is, a lot of it was literally, they're telling me this happened to them, yeah? So in this case, I'm not really able to say, that didn't happen to your kid, there was no black bully. He wasn't a big black boy, he didn't say that. Um, so I would say for, for some of the other claims that people said, some of the other parts of the narratives, there were verifiably things I could say that there's no way you know, there's no way that happened. So um, things like, oh, well, you know, um, black farmers and white farmers, they all got the same pay for their crops, you know? Of course. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> um, yeah, so things like that. Um, yeah, um, and also some of the claims on uh, the workers in their homes under segregation. There was a lot of claims about, um, you know, she was just like family or we treated her just like family. So a lot of that is like, mm, well, within the context, from your perspective, yeah, maybe. But just knowing, kind of thinking about the other side of it, you're kind of like, not really. You know, it's a piece of it, but it's not the whole part of the story. Yeah. Mm. Oh, 
Kristen, thank you for an excellent presentation. And um, I would like to actually invite people to think about some of the more structural issues that were involved in the way school integration happened in the United States. Not just how it happened, but why it happened. Now, I lived through this period, too. I didn't live down here. I lived up in New Jersey. But these issues were the same all over the nation. And in part, they were the same all over the nation. Because the people who led this nation never really wanted integration to happen. It happened because of social forces that they could not stop. This was, at the time, the so-called American century. The United States was now a global power. It was fighting the spread of communism in Southeast Asia and in Eastern Europe. It could not appear to be a racially segregated society when it was at the same time trumpeting that it was the bastion of freedom for the rest of the world. And so while the leadership of this country was entirely comfortable with maintaining racial segregation from now until doomsday, they were forced into this by events that were outside of their control. That's why when the Supreme Court came up with Brown v. Board of Education, there was never an implementation plan associated with it. It said with all deliberate speed. That's absolute nonsense. <laughs> There's no plan, there's no benchmarks, there's no measurement, there's no budget. And again, you know, as, as, a, as someone who's worked in organizations, you know whether something is valuable to an organization if there's a budget associated with it. If there's no budget associated with it, then they clearly don't care. So, you know, hearing these responses from um, this excellent work and having experienced this myself, I'm absolutely sure all of these things happened. Now, sure, people were, are remembering this with ascertainment bias. So they, they remember some things, but they don't remember other things. But the overall context and, and fabric of what was happening was happening exactly as these people described. It was a disaster. It was a disaster because these people never wanted it to happen, never planned for it to, never, to happen, didn't come up with a way that was reasonable for it to happen. To do those things would require rethinking the entire fabric of institutional racism in the United States, which they were unwilling to do. And so what we're faced with now, okay, in 2017, is rethinking the racial fabric of the United States. If we are in any way serious, we have to start asking the hard questions and we have to be willing to do the things that generations before us were unwilling to do. Okay? And so that's, I think, what we need to be talking about, about how we're going to put that on the table. Thank you. Well said, sir. <laughs> Thanks very much. I, I, I was very moved by that and, and helped by it. And it just occurs to me that um, if we're to learn uh, from what you've talked about, Kristen, that one of the things which holds our inability to think seriously about our complicity in this is the need for, for me to think of myself as basically a good person. Because um, if, if I cannot allow that to be questioned in any way, um, then I can't think straight. Um, 
So uh, if we're going to reimagine what it is to be um, a civil society in the United States, um, um, certainly as whites, I think it's really important that we find some way to cope with the fact that we are not basically good people, that we are all um, seriously complicit in a very unequal society, even if we don't choose to be. Um, it's just true of us, and that's a start. I'm just wondering if you had some, oh, if you had some thoughts about the current situation, what's happening with construction of, of people's views about race and ethnicity, um, involving not just memories but also the media and political strife and things like that. So. Yeah, well, there's um, a tornado going on right now, so, uh, yeah. I mean, I think uh, John, John's comments um, were interesting about this need that we have. I think this is also fairly universal. We need to feel like we're good. Um, and that certainly is behind a lot of the resistance that we see people putting up to certain kinds of suggestions or act, uh, activism. Um, but I think that, you know, certainly on the individual level, and this could become collective, we can create a different sense of what good is. It doesn't have to be, I'm never challenged, you know? It doesn't have to be that I'm not complicit some way in the, my society, but I can act towards the vision that I really want, and that can be what's good, and I can still have to participate in my society. Um, so I, I don't think that, I do believe that needing to see ourselves as good is highly implicated in some of the problems, but it can, it's part of the solution as well. I keep forgetting to say this, but what John, what John was saying, um, uh, I believe I, I, I was, there's a thing called reevaluation counseling and there's a human side of human being theory that we're all born good at our core beings, but in the context of the structural racism that we've inherited. So I keep coming back to that, that foundation, and that's something that's helped me, that for me, for myself, and for everybody, that we're all good at our core being, and I am, you know, we act, I think, or at least I can only speak for myself, but act, we're individuals, I'm an individual, but I act in the context of, of cultures. So what am I doing? I mean, I did social work as part of my journey in education, and I was complicit, and, and that's a whole other thing too, uh, is an, an oppressive system. And social work to me is, a, is, is being a human being in the, in the context of a capitalist system. But, but anyway, so I think we're all good at our core beings. There's the human side of human beings that we're all born good, intelligent, zestful, creative, etc. But we can do, you know, harmful things, and it's out of when, um, uh, you know, ignorance. So it's just it's paying attention, and in the context of, you know, of, of cultures, and I think cultures create, you know, uh, si systems. Here in the church, we call it sin. <laughs> <laughs> I would just like to say that I think it's very important for people to step out of their own culture um, to find out what their culture really is. Um, living in, in Japan as the only uh, American family and my children were asked for their autograph when they went to school. <laughs> um, but realizing that all societies have their challenges and I was very sad that every place we lived in America and in other countries, one group would be singled out to be called by a name. 
that was negative. And I, I lived in New Jersey, I've lived in Texas, um, and small southern town in Japan. And it's, it's very interesting. This is a world global problem. I think maybe we lead in the problem. <laughs> and if I might add, it's also incredibly important that we learn to step into our culture. That white culture goes unexamined, we don't know what it looks like. We live it every day. Hmm. And that, without that examination, that, that close examination of who we are and what we believe and what we are doing to harm other people, we can't step into someone else's culture hmm. and know it or ourselves. So. So uh, thank you, Kristen, very much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Kristen, very much. Thank you all for coming. I have a few announcements. Let's give Kristen a hand. Uh, a couple of announcements. First, uh, some of you signed in on the sign-up sheets in the table over there. If you didn't sign in, with your email, then we might encourage you to do that because you might have seen slides at the beginning listing resources. And I will say about the resources, this is another way for us to become aware of who we are, what we do, how we participate in our racial hierarchies, racially hierarchical society in ways that can be very damaging to other people and to us. So continuing education, continuing learning is part of what GERA is about. In addition to signing in to getting the, the e email um, announcements and resources, you will also find that you get information about a, tr a training, a racial equity training institute workshop, which takes place every month or two or three. And this is an incredibly important transformative experience which will help us help you help me it is I've done it several times um, and I always learn more help me continue to learn about the things we weren't taught that are so important to understanding how our society works and so important to beginning to grasp the institutional part that Dr. Graves mentioned uh, so eloquently so please sign in. Second, there's a basket over there for uh, donations to Fusion Films. Uh, third, this book we might want to discuss further. And if you would like to sign up for a book discussion group, there is a sign-up sheet for that. We unfortunately don't have books for sale tonight so that Kristen can autograph them. But, <laughs> but um, you can um, probably email her and she'll send you an email of autograph or something like that. <laughs> uh, our next, in the Doing Our Work series, our next presentation will be a, a month from today, March the 7th. It's at Guilford Park Presbyterian Church, 2100 Fernwood. You'll get a reminder of that if you sign the list. And it's on race and education in Guilford County, the history of race and education in Guilford County and North Carolina. And uh, we encourage you to come to all those things. Somebody wanted to remind me of something. Yeah, oh, yes, one more that. thing. <laughs> you 
you wanted to say something about collecting the other information. You told me to remind you. Thank you. So uh, <laughs> Kristen has uh, collected information from, on the experiences and memories of white people who grew up in Greensboro and lived through school integration. We are not aware of a similar collection of interviews of African Americans who lived through that period. And if any of you knows of uh, resources in those of that sort, or has ideas about how we might want to uh, address that as a project, please uh, see one of us. Um, you'll get email addresses, so you'll know who you could send that to if you need to. Um, so I have one little comment, and this is very personal, and maybe it's inappropriate, but I'm gonna do it. Um, in this challenge to, to be part of the change, the structural change, and at the same time try to maintain the belief that I'm an okay person, I feel like I'm not responsible for what happened before. I'm now responsible for what happens next. Mm -hmm. And if I continue, if I continue to learn, if I continue to work with people like you <coughs> and other people, then okay. I can, I feel like I can kind of maintain my I'm a good person thing. If I'm irresponsible in that way, then I think if I'm true to myself, I'm not being a good person. So again, maybe inappropriate, but welcome to the next one in a month. Thank you.